So if you've got a Bible, um, you might want to start turning to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 18. John 18, 1 to 18. If you haven't got a Bible, that's okay. Uh, We'll be projecting the passage up on the screen later. So if you're a visitor here today, welcome. Really great to have you. A big hello to you. As I said last week at our baptisms uh, service, my invitation to you, if you're new here, is to keep coming. As I said the other day, church is an exciting, thought-provoking, dynamic, community-transforming place to be. It's not boring, right? It's anything but boring. Whether you're a Christian or not, actually, whether you feel good enough or not, whether your life is all together or not, whatever social background from you're from, whatever cultural background, we have a real mix of cultures in this church. Jubilee could really be a place for you. And, you look, and if you look at it differently, the only thing that you've got to lose is that you'll be missing Northeast Lie, very interesting, and the Hairy Bikers Chicken and Egg, which I think is on uh, BBC Two. So, church, get to it. We're continuing in our series called The Gospel of John. Um, uh, and as we approach Easter, we're homing in on Jesus' final hours before the crucifixion and then resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the time, around this time of year, this is the time where billions of Christians across the globe remember, think about, reflect what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And in John's Gospel, we have a up-close, in-your-face, gripping, vivid moments of these final hours that Jesus and his disciples went through. And today we'll be looking at a few hours before Jesus is arrested. That's the, topic, that's the passage that I'm going to be talking about this morning in the Garden of Gethsemane. And actually afterwards, we're just going to be dealing with the Garden of Gethsemane, but afterwards he'll be taken and trialed in front of the uh, Jewish uh, council, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, uh, the Pharisees, and followed by that he'll be trialed again in front of the Roman governor, of Judea, Pontius Pilate. Stories which a lot of us are very used to. So anyhow, let's read the passage this morning. John 18, 1 to 18. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with him. When Judas said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have lost, I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had Uh, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant 
uh, servants, a high priest's servant lopping off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away, Peter. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Let's pray. Yeah, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for these final hours. I thank you, Lord, that this is a time where we can reflect and meditate on the cross. Let there be never a moment where we pass by the cross and go on to bigger things. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will open our hearts afresh as we open up the cross again, as we open up these final hours over these next few weeks. I pray that you will give us a fresh vision of your cross, that you will give us a fresh glimpse of what you are accomplished on the cross and through your resurrection. We pray, Lord, that the gospel of Jesus Christ speaks to us vividly and through us speaks to a world that desperately needs Easter to come true in their lives. So, Holy Spirit, we ask for resurrection life this morning. We ask for resurrection living this morning. We ask for resurrection mindsets this morning. We ask for resurrection actions this morning as you remind us once again of your glorious love, your glorious cross, what you did, the cup of the Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the plot thickens. Things are seemingly not going according according to plan. The disciples are getting concerned. Judas has abandoned Jesus. We have... Uh, what we, what, what, they're asking the question, what have we left everything for? Can we really trust this man, Jesus? Sometimes we can get carried away in the series of events that follow uh, as if things were going wrong. As if Jesus is somehow losing control. But the Bible is unequivocal here. It's factual here. It's straight to the point. All of what's going on at these very moments, especially in these very moments, are God's doing. As Isaiah puts it very vividly, Isaiah 53.10, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush Jesus and cause him to suffer. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. It was a good thing. Or as the Apostle Paul, Peter wrote in Acts 2.23, this man Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. And so as we approach Easter Jubilee, we are approaching the climax of God's plan. This is it, the crowning point of the whole Bible story, the pinnacle, the top of the mountain in terms of human history, the moment where God brought his resurrection life to yours. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I want you to listen up. This is good news. Don't let another Easter drift by as if it was just a bunny rabbit chocolate egg holiday. It's, it's serious. Easter is serious and transforming. So three things that I want us to see from this passage this morning. Um, um, Firstly, in this passage, Jesus is making the greatest claim ever. Secondly, Jesus defines the greatest problem ever. And thirdly, Jesus accomplishes the greatest mission ever. 
the greatest claim, the greatest problem, and the greatest mission. So firstly, Jesus is making the greatest claim ever. See verse 4 to 6? What does it say? 4 to 6. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, Jesus wasn't surprised or caught out. We said that already. He went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. And this is what's astonishing, his answer. He says, I am he. That's what Jesus said. And we know it's astonishing, it's clearly astonishing, because when they heard it, they drew back and fell to the ground. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. That's what it says, doesn't it? So why? Why did that happen? Why was it, what was it that caused them, if you like, to topple for their, for their knees to go like jelly? What was it that shocked them so much? Well, when you look at the Greek of I am he, um, as, as it's written here, Jesus didn't actually say I am he. That's there for us to make sense of it, yet when we're reading. But actually he said, I am. He said, I am. And do you know what? That is an astonishing statement, isn't it? You look very astonished. If you remember way back, if you remember way back to the story of Moses where, where Moses comes across that burning bush and encounters God, trembling with holy fear, hiding his face, cowering. And if you remember the conversation, Moses says to God, what shall I say your name is? The name of Yahweh, God. And God reveals this as his name. I am who I am. I am. That's my name, God says. And actually, this isn't just a random name either. It's probably the most likely basis uh, from, which, um, uh, from which the name Yahweh comes from, which is used you know, nearly 7,000 times in the Bible. What a name. I am who I am. What does it mean? Well, it kind of means I exist to be. I don't depend on anything or anyone an anymore. I am. In fact, I matter. That's another way of phrasing it. And you know what? That's staggering. That's staggering for, for God to name himself that. But I'll tell you what's really staggering. When a living, breathing human being, God, man, Jesus Christ, takes that name upon itself, on himself, that's really astonishing. That's why they drew back and fell to the ground. Never heard before, except from the, mouth, from the mouths of Looney Tune receptors deceptive rebels and actually certainly an offence to most other understandings of God today and then Jesus says very famously in the great commission uh, to, him, to his great commission to all of humanity in Matthew 28 all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Jesus therefore go and make disciples of all nations all of our doing, what's he saying? All of our doing and activity and being stems from the very truth that I am in charge. I am who I am. When you read Isaiah 6, you feel the full blow of God's authority. As one man, the prophet Isaiah, suddenly encounters the great I am. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
And the angels were shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me after seeing this, cried Isaiah. I am ruined, for I have seen the King and the Lord Almighty. I am. Over the years, it's always got me how the Bible kicks off the start of the Bible. In the beginning, God. Boom, that's it. There's no long drawn out explanations or arguments about who made God, about what was there before him, like I would have done probably. It's not a detailed scientific account of how things came to be. There's no philosophical debate. There's no uncertainty, no confusion, no ambiguity, just in the beginning, God. I am who I am. My friend Richard Dawkins um, the atheist, um, he, he writes this, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic repl replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason to it nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, no God. Nothing but blind pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is. And we dance to his music. That's scary. That's too scary for me. According to that, there's no supreme authority. The world, me, you, your, your kids, Hitler, Bin Laden, Mother Teresa, we're all just dancing to the music of our DNA. Just by chance. Good, evil, love, fear, compassion, hope, bereavement, laughter, joy. Just all chemical reactions in your brain. Not real. Is that how you really see it? No God, no authority, no I am. But Jesus tells a different story. He says, I am who I am. I matter. Why are they knocked off their feet? Because they get a glimpse of his true glory. They feel the presence of the Most High, the Almighty God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. That's his other name. This is truly the greatest claim. Never, hear this, never did Muhammad, Confucius, Ramakrishna, Buddha say anything like this. Go and ask their followers. I've spoken to them. They, said, they might have said, I'll show you the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, I am the, tr the way, the truth, and the life. They might have said, I'll tell you what food might strengthen you. But Jesus says, I am the bread of life. They said, let me show you the light. Jesus said, I am the light. They said, I'll, I'll show you the doorway to God. Jesus said, I am the door. Again and again and again, we see the difference. You can't just put them all on the same shelf. Listen, I'm not deliberately trying to be offensive here. I'm just telling you what the God-man said. It's actually a matter of intellectual incredibility, actually. You've either got to hate or ignore him, 
or draw back and fall on your knees before him. Jesus is unlike anything or anyone else in how he acted and what he said. He is different from any other thing in the whole history of the world. That's why he can say, I am who I am. That's why it's the greatest claim ever. Secondly, Jesus defines the greatest problem ever. This is a tricky one, because we don't always get this. I was uh, having a chat with Ben in the car about this, and we had some deep, deep debate, didn't we, Ben? He's probably gone. But it's actually a very sophisticated diagnosis, actually, when you look at how humanity... uh, It's a very sophisticated diagnosis, actually, when you look at how humanity plays out in the world, this this, 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 this point... Hear this, the Bible tells us that all of us naturally hate God. We're enemies of God. We're in rebellion, that's what the Bible says. Everyone. Everyone. You see, you see, who are these people in the in in the story in the in in the account that we've just read? Who are these people who come to arrest Jesus? Well, there's the highly moral religious types, the goody two-shoes. There's the Roman pagans who have millions of gods or no gods and lived a debauched life. We have people from various levels of society. This detachment of soldiers would have had guys on top and just common soldiers. Right? A whole range of social groupings. We have extreme enemies like Judas, all wanting to arrest, humiliate, and ultimately kill Jesus. Everyone. We can look at this story and tut, tut, tut. How terrible. What a ghastly man. Who would do such a thing? But do you know what? As the late Bible teacher John Stott said, we may try to wash our hands of responsibility like Pontius Pilate later, but our attempt will be futile, as futile as his, for there is blood on our hands too. That's what John Stott said. You might not agree with that. You might think, that's a bit far-fetched. I certainly did when I, uh, around the time I, be, I was becoming a Christian, as it were. But Jesus declares emphatically, every human being, until the Holy Spirit changes our heart, is in rebellion. He said to Peter, we even got a bit of that today, he said to Peter, my friend, you're not an exception. You will betray me, he said to Peter. And we see that in the end he did. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5.10, we were in the heat of combat. This is the voice version. We were in the heat of combat, or in other words, enemies of God, when his son reconciled himself to us by laying down his life. Okay, let's think about this, because this is important. Psychologists, social, sociologists, I was going to say socialists, sociologists will tell us the human heart pushes back and hits anything that threatens its self-sovereignty, the mastery of its own life. We want to be in control. I'm in charge of my life. I decide what's right. I'm the daddy. Let's look at another example. One of the ways you hide your hatred from uh, hatred of God from yourself is by creating pictures of God in your mind that you can control. Yeah? 
that you can lead away in chains, if you like, like these Roman soldiers did. So we create in our our minds a view of God that we can master. We say things like, that's the God I believe in. My Jesus wouldn't do that. My Jesus uh, wouldn't act like that. I feel God is like this. I don't hate God. But listen, the very fact that you have to create a God that you can master and manipulate shows that you hate a God you can't. Think about that. Madeleine Murray O'Hare, one of, the, uh, one of America's most famous atheists, uh, a lady who in 1963 managed to bring a court case that, limit, uh, that, um, that um, eliminated official public school prayers across America, I think. She was once interviewed by Sir David Frost, and as they were debating whether there was a God, David Frost was losing, because Marilyn Murray O'Hare was a very bright lady. She was a smart lady. So in desperation, he turned to the studio, you lot, and uh, the audience and said, how many of you believe in God? And you know what? Almost everybody put their hand up. They all raised their hand. He won. She was voted out. But do you know what? Marilyn Murray, R.C. Sproul wrote about this later, Madeline Murray O'Hare missed a trick that night. What she could have done was said, ah, let me restate David Frost's question. How many of you believe in the God of the Bible? The God who, when he descends on Mount Sinai, says, anybody who touches this mountain must be killed. The God who says, I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy on. The God who, when he's present in the Ark of the Covenant and someone touches the Ark, they die. The God who has Job go through all his horrendous suffering and then shows up at the end of the book, and uh, the book of Job, and says, I'm not going to even tell you why it happened. I just want you to trust me. I'm God, you're not. The God of judgment. How many of you believe in that God? Put your hands up. I tell you what, probably nobody would have put their hands up in that audience. Tim Keller Wright says it this way. The fact that we create pictures of God that are under our arrest, that we have control of, shows we hate the God we can't master. It's deep down, it's deep within. Let me give you another example. Our religion our religious behavior too can show how much we hate God. I bet, you that, I bet you that might surprise you. Another way to try and tame God, master God, is through religion. You see, the religious view of God goes like this. I, if I live a good life, if I pray, if I read the Bible, if I do good things, then God has to bless me. That's his duty. Do you know what you're doing? Once again, you're creating a false God whom you think you can control. That's the problem with religion. In the movie Amadeus, I like this movie, uh, about Mozart and and the rival musician, uh, Salieri. Salieri says, When I was a boy, I really loved God, and I gave the most noble prayer a boy could pray. He said, Lord, make me a great composer. Bring great music into the world through me so that people praise my very name, so that I would be immortally famous. That was his prayer. Make me a great composer and use me like that. And he goes on to say, in exchange, if you do that, Lord, I will give you my chastity. I won't sleep around like that blinking Mozart. 
I'll give you my industry. I'll work very hard for you, unlike that blinking Mozart. In other words, he, in other words, he was a very good person. He was, a, he was very devoted. He helped the poor. He was sexually pure. He made a big deal of that. In the film, he makes... Uh, uh, um, but eventually, he comes to realize the gift he was asking for, that he had worked so hard for, had been given to Mo, uh, Mozart. A man in the movie, uh, who's depicted as a real big sinner, indulgent, promiscuous, a big drinker. And when Salieri realized this, in spite of all his hard work, God had given this unworthy person the gift. He goes crazy. His hatred of God becomes crystal clear. In fact, there's a, there's a very dramatic scene in that film where he's looking at a crucifix on the wall and he says... From now on, we are enemies, you and I. And then he takes the crucifix off the wall and throws it into the fire. Very dramatic. Listen, Salieri wanted God, wanted a God who he could control through his good works. And the only reason you create a God like that is you hate the real God, deep down. You want a God under arrest. You want a God you can lead off in chains. That's why the Bible says, deep down, we are all naturally enemies of God. Do you see that? This is fundamental. It's the greatest problem of humanity. What the Bible fundamentally calls sin. Jesus said it, it's what comes out of a person that pollutes them. Obscenities, lusts thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, depravity, deceptive dealings, mean looks, slander, arrogance, foolishness. All of us can relate to these things. All these are vomit from the heart, says Jesus. A heart that is in rebellion towards God. Naturally. That's the diagnosis of a broken world that is in desperate need of fixing. So where are we? What do we do? Well, this is the gospel, isn't it? This is what Easter is all about. He doesn't owe us anything, yet remarkably, in his avalanche of grace, his never-ending waterfall of love and compassion. Point three, he pulls off the greatest ever mission of all history. You see, Jesus came to die. God in the form of a human came to humanity's terrible plight and delusion with the sole aim of rescue, freedom, renewal, restoration, and bringing you into his family. See verse 11, Jesus commanded, Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? This is the answer. The cup. Listen, you'll never realize the extent of God's love until you look into the cup. Jesus did, and he was horrified at what he saw. Today we think nice things maybe about cups, like a cup of tea with, a, with some cake, or a cup of hot squash, nice. Um, or a trophy maybe, the World Cup. However, the Bible, in the Bible, to God, the cup is always ominous describing God's rightful and righteous anger towards the sinfulness of humanity. Justice, actually. 
The cup is God giving us what we want as we shout back to him, stuff you, God, leave me alone, God. I don't need you, I don't want you, I'd be better off without you, get out of my face. The cup is life without God and the consequences of that grave decision. Jeremiah um, 25 puts it like this. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath or wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. Habakkuk 2.16, there's loads of these, but I'll only do two. Habakkuk 2.16 says, You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and and disgrace will cover your glory. These are horrid, graphic, violent images that communicate the sheer anger that God feels towards sin. He's not like us. He cannot brush it under the carpet like we do. If he could, actually, he wouldn't be worth worshipping, would he? By revelation, this cup becomes huge. Revelation 16, the cup filled with the wine of the fury of God's wrath. Why am I telling you all this? Surely, we're coming to the end of the sermon, surely by now, Raj, we should be on our way up. Surely this is the bit where you start getting joyful and excited. That's normal protocol, isn't it? For preaching a sermon a bit downhill to begin with and then take off right at the end. What are you doing, Raj? You're breaking protocol. Listen, this is the joy news. If you don't know what Jesus is truly saving you from, you cannot grasp the depth of his mercy and grace and love. If you don't know what Jesus had to go through on the cross, you cannot fathom the extent of his adoration and love and compassion towards you. If you owed me a tenner, ten pounds, and, and I let you off, you'd be very grateful. If you owed me 20,000 pounds, you'd be ecstatic if I let you off. Wouldn't you? You'd draw back, maybe, and fall on your knees. Listen, we deserve the cup. And that's very, very, very bad news. It's not an opinion. It's not just what I think. It's not a fairy tale. It just is. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 5, you're not getting away with anything. Every refusal and avoidance of God adds fuel to the fire. You are storing up wrath for yourself. The day is coming when it is going to blaze hot and high. God's fiery and righteous judgment. Make no mistake. In the end, you get what's coming to you. That's justice. There's no escape. Yet, yet, in Jesus there is. In Jesus, there is an answer. Through the cross, we are gloriously set free. This was his mission impossible, but as we know, nothing is impossible with God. I'm going to end 
with Andrew Wilson's words about this wonderful, one, wondrous accomplishment of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is what it says. Imagine all the waste you had ever generated in your life was stored in a gigantic septic tank. Litter, coke cans, wood chips, uneaten food, vomit, urine, and excrement. All in a huge, stench-ridden, stinking vat. Then, at the end of your life, you were told the entire tank was going to be poured over your head on the Day of Judgment. How would you feel? But because of Jesus, it isn't. That's the wonder of what Christ accomplished on the cross. Faced with an enormous vat of God's righteous wrath that was due to be poured over our heads, Jesus took our place and received this punishment instead. What was in the septic tank wouldn't just disappear, it had to go somewhere. At Calvary, the septic tank of judgment was emptied over Jesus' perfect head instead of ours until every last drop of sludge was gone. The cup of God's fury was downed in one, once for all. And in that moment of submission where Christ cried out to his Father in heaven, not my will be done, but yours, the cup of God's anger was drained altogether for those who trust and believe in Jesus. It now stands empty. Even if, as a Christian, you wanted to drink it, there's nothing left. The hero of Gethsemane has cleared it completely. The massive septic tank of wrath at my pollution and slime, my sin and rebellion, has been completely poured out on Jesus, so that even if I stood under the vat myself, there would be nothing in it to fall on me. Because Jesus accepted the cup on my behalf, it is actually part of God's justice that I, you, me, everyone here who trusts Jesus doesn't have to. There is no punishment left. It has all been taken away. If the band could come up, that would be great. In his last moments on the cross, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked, up a spo- soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jubilee, for all of you who trust in, love, cherish, adore this Jesus, it has all been taken away. We don't have to go back to it. That vat is empty. The cup of wrath is gone. It is finished. We're going to worship now, but we're also going to break.